How can you be part of a religious community that straight up denies Sometimes science it feels or like sees the it as suspicious? The church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the Why are they so obsessed with being answers. I would never be a part of a church that is not welcoming The church is the most vocal political voice against immigration. Some churches still don't want to claim that worship was the actual how can your story be good that is from the majority of people on the church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the like, culture how is that actually it seems like so much of the church's concern with being a good anti-critical they are being homophobic too narrow judgmental disconnected from what is truly happening in the real world <sighs> the church needs therapy welcome to the newest episode of the church needs therapy and today, our guest is Bridget Eileen Rivera. Bridget is a writer, speaker, and educator, and is currently completing her doctoral studies in sociology. Her first book, Heavy Burdens, which comes out on Brazos Press. I actually don't know how to pronounce that. Is it Brazos? Uh, you know, that's a good... I always pronounce it Brazos, but okay. I honestly don't know if that's... It's a preference thing. It's, it's whatever it is. <laughs> Her first book on Brazos Press or Brazos Press comes out this year on October 26th, which also happens to be my birthday. Oh, happy birthday. Um, and, the, and her book unpacks the legacy of discrimination against LGBTQ people in Christianity. And for those listening, you can learn more about Bridget's journey and get a feel for her writing and her story and even get a sneak peek at her, her new book on our website, Meditations of a Traveling Nun. Com. Um, Bridget, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me and to be with us and the listeners today. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm excited to talk. Yeah, I feel like if, if we were to have met out here in Hawaii, and I, but I saw you on Instagram first, because your Instagram handle is like traveling none. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's people I meet like my wife's friends or people we know out here where I see them on Instagram first and I'll meet them in person later. And I have a tendency to call them by their Instagram handle. So my <laughs> wife, we have a friend out here. Her Instagram handle is mermaid love 808. Oh wow. And so I'll just be like, Hey, where's mermaid love? <laughs> like it's in my mind, she's always that. So I feel like if I met you out here, I'm like where's, where's is the traveling nun coming to? <laughs> That's great. You know, I think I wanted to start with this. I always think it's an interesting it's an interesting background story for people to hear. If you would take the time, introduce yourself to the people a bit more personally. Like if we zoomed out a little bit, what are some of the bigger picture movements or moments in your life, specifically in your relationship and experience with the church that led you to where you are today? Yeah, I love this question. And I love that you started with this question because it opens up so many different avenues and things to talk about. Um, So zooming out, just to kind of give people a way to kind of anchor me, um, I grew up in the evangelical church and Reformed Baptist church, and um, I grew up within the homeschool evangelical movement. Um, And you're, you're in it. I was in it. I was in the, the very heart of conservative evangelicalism. And um, I had overall um, a fairly good experience um, in uh, growing up in the church. I um, 
really had a, a fairly good church that um, I attended for most of my childhood that really um, gave me a solid foundation and understanding of, of theology from a Reformed perspective um, that I am still incredibly grateful for to this day. Um, and um, that it really gave me kind of a, um, just a strong foundation and understanding God's word, understanding doctrine and theology. Um, and then also just, you know, kind of, uh, the whole process of putting God's word in your heart. Um, I guess, you know, some people don't appreciate that they had to do this as kids, but, um, I memorized just verses after verses after verses of Bible passages when I was a child. And, um, as an adult, I'm just so incredibly grateful for that, um, to like have that and be able to like bring that to mind when necessary, um, because the truth of God's word is, um, so powerful, um, to combat lies. Um, and that has been something that has been something that I, I treasure for most of my life, but getting to like kind of some of the, I guess, moments in my life that have kind of, I guess, led me to where I am today. Um, and I share these not so much because I want to kind of like make it sound as if my experience in the church was all negative, because as I said, it wasn't, it was for the most part, very positive. Um, but there are some experiences and moments that really, I guess, defined my relationship um, to myself in ways that were not the most healthy. Um, and one of those is with gender. And from the earliest time of my childhood, I remember being taught this concept that um, women submit to men. And there's all of these different things that are attached to that concept that kind of define who we are in the world. Um, and so when I was four years old, I remember it so vividly because it like crushed my soul when it happened. Um, we were at Sunday school and the Sunday school teacher had um, just finished a lesson in which one of the Bible characters had heard the audible voice of God. And so the lesson had wrapped up and we were moving on to something else. And I remarked to one of the Sunday school volunteers um, who was a man, um, I remarked to him that one day I would hear the voice of God too, just like the character in the Bible story. And uh, he looked down to me, um, and I don't actually remember seeing his face because all I remember seeing was his legs and hearing his voice because, you know, I'm four years old and that's your kind of vantage point. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he, uh, I, I was, you know, just standing there, I said this to him and he said back to me, um, if God wants to say something to you, he will say it to your father. And uh, when you're married, he'll say it to your husband. Wow. And uh, I said, well, why? Why won't he say it to me? And he responded, because God chooses to speak to men. Wow. 
And that literally just crushed me. Um, it made me feel as uh, if because, because of who I am as a woman, I am somehow a step removed from God. Um, and if only I had been born a man, then I could be closer to him um, and be in, in a more direct line to um, hearing from God um, and being in relationship to him. And so those types of messages were kind of just yeah. part of the package um, yeah. my whole I, life. I, do you mind if I jump in before the next moment just yeah, to yeah, yeah. respond to that? One I mean, I let guests know if it's the first time I meet them. Like, I did not grow up in the church, so I had a, a sort of a unique and unusual journey to get to where I am. But I did end up at a, a, a evangelical Bible college, like a Pentecostal one in my 20s, you know, after University of Hawaii. And so it was enough where I was there for like two to three years where like I, could, I didn't grow up on the settlement, but I stayed there for a few years to get the culture and the energy without the ideological ties without it being so deep in my heart. So it was almost like I was more like of an observer participant to use some of my <laughs> old grad school language where I'm like, I'm there, yeah. I'm in that world, but I was never fully of it because I didn't grow up with it. I say that because a story like that, while I know, I know conceptually is more common than I think, to me almost feels like a caricature and like that doesn't really, like in my mind, like that doesn't really happen. Like men, even though I know it does, I'm like, it's so audacious and so ridiculous and so damaging and so silly. I, it's still like, I just still can't believe how common and it just hurts me so deeply when I hear those things because there are people whose lives it is affecting. That's one of the things I love about the, even the intro to your book. One, having a critical lens on parts of the church while being able to embrace the whole, I think you do so well in the intro, by the way as you say that now Thank and you. two, like you see those stories have concrete effects on the psychological, emotional well-being of people long-term and my daughter's four and just hearing that right now. And she's so smart and so advanced, you know, and I just, the thought a four-year-old, oh, just, okay, sorry, go ahead. Just, just keep going. I just feel that so deeply. No. Yeah. I mean, it's so true. Um, and like the, like, being a four-year-old child, what happens in your early childhood is formative for the rest of your Absolutely. life. And so the things that you are told during the age range between zero and five years old becomes the things that you tell yourself about who mm. you are and your identity and how you relate to the world and others relate to you literally for the rest of your life. And like we, we will spend, you know, years unpacking that and working through that and trying to find new narratives because like this is the programming that was put into us yeah. and yeah yeah yeah, yeah. So, oh man yeah. yeah so so four years old that happens that's for you that's a defining you remember it it shapes you it's with you and then like as time goes on what are some of those bigger picture like you stay in the church you're a teen at your college yeah, so um, probably the next big moment for me was um, uh, learning about LGBTQ people in the church. And um, it was interesting because I didn't, it didn't necessarily really 
sit strongly with me when I heard these messages. I didn't even necessarily know that they were getting like kind of internalized within my like programming as a person um, because I didn't know that I was queer. I didn't know that I was gay. Um, And so, but um, I remember a sermon very vividly where the pastor referred to LGBTQ people um, as vessels of wrath um, made by God for destruction. Um, And throughout my childhood, gay people were always referenced in this way as perverted, as sinful, as condemned by God, as like inherently like rebellious and just awful people. Um, And, you know, they all just, it all just kind of like, washed over me because again, I didn't realize that these messages were about someone like me Mm. um, until years later, I started figuring out that I was attracted to women. Mm. Um, And then all of a sudden, every last sermon that I had ever heard about LGBTQ people, every last comment that anyone had ever made to me about sin and hell and damnation and how gay people are perverts like all of it just came like to the surface like oh my gosh where was all of this but it was like it was there it was being told it had been told to me for years and now all of a sudden it all comes back because now it applies to me um and it you know was really hard to have to at once realize oh geez, I'm attracted to women and also be like having to deal with like this narrative that I had been given about people like me. Um, And so I would say those two things um, on like the gender side and then on the sexuality side really kind of were like two, two pillars of um, defining moments and kind of, you know, ironically um, what, for me, my experience with the church when it comes to gender and sexual identity is just being defined um, in such a negative, like being defined as lesser than man, than men and being defined as inherently sinful mm. um, as a result of the teachings that were being put into my life yeah. from the church. Yeah. And that, and that experience with the sort of, you know, emerging realization of same-sex attraction, having all those old memories flood back. It's like a movie moment when someone goes back where they thought the story was one day, then it all comes flooding back. You know, it kind of sounds like that destabilizing kind of like moment. Yeah. Was was that like college-ish at that moment? Um, Yeah, it was kind of, it was a process for me. So it, you know, it wasn't necessarily one single moment, but it definitely was a process that started in college and kind of reached a climax, um, probably for me, like a year after graduating from college. We are back. We got interrupted by a false alarm in my building. So to finish what I was saying, my question is when you first have that realization, my emerging awareness of same-sex attraction, sexuality, and, but, and then you stay in the church or you still have love for the church. <clears throat> One of the things I wish everybody would know is 
the love, the faithfulness, the courage, the grit, the tenacity, the trust that it takes and how amazing it is for LGBTQ people who are coming to terms with their sexuality and who are doing so in the context of a place that they know they are not, and so many of the representations of the church, they know they're not going to be welcomed in, or they've already experienced marginalization by, but the love they still have, like, that's one of the tragic ironies of LGBTQ people in the church is I'm like, do you understand how much grace and love LGBTQ people need to extend and live and embody nonstop just to even hold on to any possibility of hope to still believe in this and be a part of this. And I've experienced that with people in our church over and over again. You know, it's like, can we extend grace to, but it's like, do you understand how much they are extending grace to you in your own? In mm-hmm. Okay. I'm just going to stop right there for a second. So, in the intro, the, the first quote that I have, I want to read, and then I just want you to speak to a little more. You tell a story, you're in a group, there's things being shared, right? And uh, you can speak to that however you want. But then you, you tell this, you, you write this. You write, just what exactly is so bad about homosexuality that a Christian would actually rather a loved one be dead than gay? That's a powerful... There's a lot there. Think about the histories, the people, the real lives that are there. I've asked myself that question more times than I could count. Though shocking and even somewhat unbelievable, the woman from my small group isn't an outlier, right? Someone who uttered a phrase like that. Her words reflect the secret and often unconscious thoughts of thousands upon thousands of Christians. Worse, her words reflect the silent voice of death in the midst of countless LGBTQ people, people made in the image of God who often tragically believe they'd be better off dead than alive as they are. Can you speak to that a little bit more? Is that response, is that a, is that a common response by people in the church? And if so, why do you think that is? Tell us, there's so much there. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so the quote is referencing a story that I shared where um, someone that I know, a friend of mine, said that they'd rather that a loved one would be dead than to find out that they were gay. Um, And uh, the truth, the sad truth is that that mentality is unbelievably common. Um, The person in my small group uttered it and said it, but it is a unspoken kind of secret thought, almost latent in people's minds um, that, people, that people have when it comes to this question of homosexuality. Um, and the reason is that we are socialized to believe that being gay is worse than death because being gay is a damnable offense. You can find out that someone you love is dead and still look forward to seeing them in heaven. But if you find out that a loved one is gay, you found out that they are a monster. And like, you know, which would you rather? Would you rather find out that your wife or children had died? Or would you rather to find out that they had been transformed into monstrous demons? Wow. 
a lot of people don't want to know that their loved ones are these monstrous demons. Mm. Uh, like, you know, people, we talk about like, you know, people that watch apocalyptic zombie movies will often like say to their loved ones, like, you know, I'll make sure that I kill you before you turn into a zombie. That's the, like, you know, it's kind of that type of thing. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, And and that's kind of this, it's this apocalyptic kind of mindset towards gay people that to Mm. be gay is to be this, this monstrous kind of demonic kind of thing. Like you have been turned into kind of um, this, this terrible, terrible monster essentially and um when people find out that their loved one is queer it really does feel to them um like they wish that they had just died that they had just found out that they were dead and to find out that they are this monster that they've been told is damned by god and is responsible for the downfall of the culture and is the reason why children are you know being led astray and the church is you know falling apart and falling into sin um, and so this is kind of the mindset right. that people are socialized in the church to have towards just LGBTQ issues in general. Um, and so, and then people are surprised when the suicide rates mm-hmm. are so, so high for LGBTQ people in the church. Um, and it's really not surprising at all because you have a culture that is telling other people and telling LGBTQ people that they are better off dead, that they are these awful, inherently sinful, inherently perverted things that God hates. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is the message. This is the atmosphere towards LGBTQ issues that exists in the church. Um, And people don't necessarily always say it outright though a lot of times they do um it doesn't it's not that hard to um hear people saying that gay people are inherently sinful that gay people are going to hell um that in itself is actually very common um but then even more than that you have these christians that are kind of just like uncomfortable with lgbtq issues and Mm -hmm. You know, because they're getting these messages um, and they're hearing these things. And so it just, it all creates this kind of um, death trap for LGBTQ people um, that really just um, creates uh, tremendous mental health issues um, and severely increases the risk of suicidal thoughts um, and death by suicide. Yeah. Yeah, that sort of culture of you know, this atmosphere of death that you're talking about, I feel like somebody could hear that and be like, well, that sounds a bit extreme, but it's actually very real. And it's Mm -hmm. actually the truth when you're looking at the statistics for teens with suicide and how they increasingly go up if they grow up in religious households and all kinds of statistics that reflect a similar, if you are in the church or if you're in a religious household and you are gay the the likeliness of being suicidal of feeling those sort of rejections and to feel sort of like this atmosphere of death is a very desirable place is so real and i've the the stories the countless stories of you know young people who stay up late at night praying to god to be straight Mm 
And then it seems like a close partner in that dialogue is or wanting to die. Mm -hmm. Like those two prayers or desires oftentimes are a lot closer than people realize. And it's because of the very atmosphere that you're describing, you know, that creates this is this zombie like living dead could be deal with what feels like a monstrosity of shame or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that is a, that is such a real lived experience. You know, obviously I would never know what that's like personally. I just know pastorally. I know through my personal relationships with people mm-hmm. and doing the work that we do. Yeah. Um, I want to read another quote from the intro. Okay. You write after some ellipses, just so it's not the whole thing. You write, this book is about people. You say, it's a simple invitation to enter my world, my friend's world, and the world of millions of LGBTQ people. It's an invitation to see through our eyes and to feel what we feel. It's an invitation to understand, and it's an invitation to love. Here's my question. Why this approach right now? for you like why is this something valuable for you personally and what are the deep possibilities you see in the hopes you have for people who can start to step into these kinds of invitations yeah well i think for me one of the reasons why i felt the need for this approach is because uh, it so often feels as though people don't actually know Hmm. what the world looks like, what the world feels like, um, what things sound like from the perspective of an LGBTQ person. Um, And there's, you know, often this kind of centering of the status quo perspective um, and looking at things from just kind of the average status quo perspective, but like, what if we flipped the table and looked at the church through the eyes of queer people and their experiences? Um, And so one of the things that I center in my book is just telling stories of LGBTQ people and their experiences in the church and what they went through. Um, Because um, I think what happens a lot in this conversation is that people tend to make this always about theology. Is gay marriage biblical? Um, Is, you know, should uh, trans people transition? You know, what does it mean to be male and female? What does the Bible say about this? What does the Bible say about that? And so it's all about theology. It's all about this kind of intellectual kind of thing. Let's, you know, answer these like questions about marriage and gender and sexuality. But Um, they, there's not really as much of an understanding of the social reality that LGBTQ people are living in, um, the discrimination, the trauma, the pain, the hurt, um, as well as the, the victories and the faith and the grace that is often given. Um, and so for me, I really hope that through my book, people will be able to lean in to understanding the world that LGBTQ people in the church must navigate. Um, And one of the things that I really tried to do is I tried to kind of flip the script a little bit, turn the lens around, um, because a lot of times in this discussion, the focus is on LGBTQ issues 
as the issue. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, I instead in my book, try to look at the church instead and what Christians assume to be true about gender and sexuality as the deeper issue going on because a lot of times people are like lgbtq issues that's the heart of the thing like Mm -hmm. is gay marriage biblical like and Mm -hmm. people want to treat that as if that's the core issue but in my book i'm kind of like no that's actually kind of peripheral we have to get to the heart of the cause of a lot of these issues and that is at the heart of it what does the church assume to be true about gender and sexuality And how is that creating pain and trauma and hurt for LGBTQ people? Mm -hmm. Um, Because that is the cause. That is where we have to start. Um, And, you know, we can talk for days about whether, you know, gay marriage is biblical. We can talk for days about, you know, what Genesis means when it says male and female. And like, we can talk about all these things, but like at the heart of the matter is that in the church, there are unhelpful ways of thinking about gender and sexuality that are ultimately causing all of the problems that we currently have today. And so we have to talk about that um, first and foremost in order to really be able to deal with these other issues. So that's what I hope that my book is able to do. Oh yeah, that's so good. And it's an interesting dynamic when you live a life that involves so much critical, rigorous thinking of the mind. You're doing a PhD, I've have you know was doing whatever I was doing in grad school. My wife's in grad school. We 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 value that. You know, we aren't people who don't value critical thinking, wrestling with issues, taking things seriously. Obviously, but there are limitations of the mind. There's limitations of reason. There's limitations of the intellect. They go as far as they go, but they there are there are parts of a whole human being that extend beyond just the life of the mind. Yeah. And with that said. Even with that, there obviously there's room and a need for all of the work. You know, I love the invitation where so where you center so many stories. There's people out there just doing rigorous theological, sociological, you know, philosophical work on this. There's people who are taking, you know, who are doing the primarily intellectual sort of organizing approach that take a very strong like fu mentality. For me, there's room for it all because when you have systems in place that have been in power for so long that are causing so much damage it needs to be challenged critiqued and we need to find a way beyond that in any way possible yeah but oftentimes and i've realized this for christians i just think for religion in general intellect can easily be a way for people to avoid vulnerability intimacy and actual relationships you know, this is not specifically for the church talking about LGBTQ folks, just in general, when people are like, let's talk about this, let's argue about something speculative. I'm like, yeah, because that's a lot easier than mm-hmm. learning how to have a hard conversation with your partner, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's a lot easier to argue about minutiae than it is to become aware of the ways in which your own father wounds prevent you from being present to your son. It's a lot easier to argue mm-hmm. about dumb shit basically yeah yeah and you know like i said the intellectual work the theological work it's all necessary and also with that the value that's the power of stories if stories have this sneaky way of maneuvering past so many defense unconscious defense mechanisms and Mm -hmm. opening our heart in ways that our mind has been trained to close off and shut down from 
Yeah. You know what I'm saying? That's, that's why I value all the work. When I saw that, the intro, I'm like, I just think there's such a value in inviting people into real life, inviting people into real time, inviting people into the stories of people, because that, you know, my wife, who's a therapist oftentimes says the shortest distance between two people is a story. And it's mm-hmm. like the, the conversations we have feel different and are experienced differently when they're taking place in the envelope of friendship, mutuality, and connection. Yes. Like yes. hurling ideological bombs from a distance so often is such a waste of time and it's so ugly it just it, mm-hmm. in, on any side of anything. And when we do so in the context of like, there's a story where a young gay man comes to our church is called Imagine. He comes to Imagine for the first time, right? You know, he's like former, his family's all professional athletes, you know, and he was like this football stud who was coming to terms with, you know, the fact that he's gay in college at a Christian college. I love this guy. Still stay in touch with him today. And a girl from our church, his roommate invites him to come to Imagine. We were meeting in a bar across the street from a house at the time. And he said he showed up with like his heart clenched. Like I'm here to be like F this pastor and whatever he says, like I'm over it, but he's going to come. And Mm -hmm. that day, just, you know, whatever chance, synchronicity, the movement of the spirit, things come together where I was actually talking specifically about the church and the LGBTQ community that day, right? Of all the years, right? Oh my gosh, that's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. And he comes in and, um, I told this story, it's a, it's a parable from the writer Peter Rollins, an old parable he wrote, where he talked about, I'll, I'll save you the long like preacher version of it to give myself another <laughs> four to five minutes. But it's like, some guy comes into a village, they don't, he like committed some crime, but they don't fully know he comes into a village and all the people are deciding like, what do we do with this guy? We found out he committed a crime. Should we house him? Should we turn him over to authority? So there's this internal debate happening within the village and the community. They go to the leaders of the community, the religious political leaders. They're like, what does the sacred text say? Well, this, this part of the sacred text says, we should welcome those who are outsiders and da, 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 da. Well, this one over here says, but if somebody commits a crime, we should do this. So there's all these conflicting things, like when people do that with the Bible, obviously. Mm-hmm. And so finally, whatever happens, I forget if they turn him over, but then a prophet comes into town saying like, oh, God sent a prophet to you here a week ago. What happened to him? And they're like, oh, we turned him over and he's gone now, right? And the prophet's like, why did you do that? What happened? They're like, we used our best wisdom. We looked into the sacred text. We look into our ancient history. We looked to blah, 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 blah. And the prophet was like, yeah, you did all that. But the problem was, is you never looked into his eyes. Mm-hmm. And that kid told me like in that moment, he's like, dude, like his, like he was crying. I could look at him and I'm like, this guy's having a moment. Cause he was like crying throughout the whole service. But he's like, when you said that it was like, everything just started like coming off of me, the shell and the looking into the eyes and how I've been treated. And like that moment was this beautifully disruptive defining moment where in the end he was just talking about what it's like to have this first real experience of God in that place. But I'm like, it was the stories because we had a, a girl who's a lesbian from our community come up and share her story at that time. And her for this girl's first time coming out publicly was right before she got baptized at our church. 
Wow. That's so her amazing. story of this is the first time I'm naming it happens in the context of the family of Christ, then welcoming her and saying, you're not only made new in Christ, but you're welcomed into a new family. So she got to share that hymn. But even that parable for me is let's do all the rigorous work. It's all necessary, mm-hmm. but let's also create environments for the stories to be heard and to see what the spirit of God does with open hearts and real people. And that's why obviously the work you do, the PhD, you can do all the intellectual work and I'm sure you're, you will do all that. Mm -hmm. But to me, I just always love when it's like, here is a journey into the lives of real people and let's begin there. That's not all we're doing. I just, I love that so much. And I just think, you know, even from the intro, I'm excited to see yeah. And like that story is just so powerful. Like I got chills as like you were telling the story and I didn't even get the preacher version. I just got the like, you know, cliff notes. You didn't first. Get the long, I didn't even tell any <laughs> jokes in the middle and stretch it out. No, no asides. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Just like, yeah. I mean, it really resonates with me there. You know, people will go to the sacred text. They'll go to the Bible. You know, the Bible says this, the Bible says that, you know, we, we think this, we think that, you know, debate, debate, debate. Um, but they never look into LGBTQ people's eyes Yeah, and yeah. never really sit with who they are. Hmm. Um, and oh my gosh, that's so good. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. You, the book, the book coming out, reminder, Heavy Burdens, October 26, 2021. You can remember to buy Bridget's book. Also, you hit me up because it's my birthday that day. Two big things happening that day. The book is called Heavy Burdens, and the subtitle is... Seven Ways um, LGBTQ Christians Experience Harm in the Church. Okay, Seven Ways LGBT Experience Harm in the Church. The title is Heavy Burdens. I believe the first scripture you use in the intro is that, that section of Matthew 23, 3 through 4. I'm going to mm-hmm. read it right now. It says, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They tie up heavy burdens. The book's called Heavy Burdens. I'm assuming there's some sort of connection there. Maybe that's mm-hmm. an overassumption. But this verse... It's used in the introduction, title of the book. What is it in this verse that captures or speaks to what you were really trying to say in this up and coming book? Yeah, so I really came to that title um, because in some ways it really reflects my own wrestling with um, what my faith ought to, what my experience of faith ought to be like as a follower of Jesus, um, because when it comes to the queer experience, especially for um, queer people that are trying to survive in conservative churches, there's almost this de facto expectation that queer people being unhappy, being lonely, Um, being miserable with their lives and wishing that they could get married and have a family is part of the process of queer people, quote, taking up their cross to follow Jesus. Um, And I myself used to say this um, about just like queer people in general in the church that um, like in my early 20s, I would say that, you know, queer people must like 
that their their sexuality, their gender, that is their cross to bear. Mm. Um, and that, you know, that everybody has their different crosses to bear. Um, and this is just, you know, what queer people need to do. So you're, um, sorry yeah. for, for clarity. You're saying in your 20s, like you were saying that, like I believe this. This is where I'm at right yeah, now. I was saying that this was this was how I used to think. Right, right, right. Okay. Um, yeah, and so that translates into this mentality that being lonely, being isolated, wishing that you could be married, wishing that you could have a family, wishing like that you weren't so isolated, um, feeling. Um, depressed because your life is uh, so devoid of relationship, that these things are just part of following Jesus for queer people, um, that we need to suffer for the sake of Christ. Um, and therefore, this is part of the suffering that we've been assigned in life. Um, and this is just how you have to be faithful. Um, and the reality is that you don't find that message in the bible mm. um what you find in the bible is yes we are called to take up our cross and follow jesus but how is that cross described in the bible um and what you find when you look at how the weight of following Jesus is described in the Bible. It is described as this paradoxical weight that actually lifts us up and makes us feel lighter. Um, and so like the, there's the verse that Je where Jesus says, take up my yoke and, um, oh my gosh, I'm like going to like mess this up because I'm like thinking on the spot here. But like he says, <laughs> um, <laughs> but he says, um, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am meek and lowly of heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Mm. Um, and so, uh, yes, Jesus says, take up the yoke of Christ with him. But then what does he say? He says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. You will find rest for your souls. So what does it mean to suffer for the sake of Christ? What does it mean to take up our cross and follow him. The, the Bible says that when we are experiencing the weight or burden of Jesus Christ, it is a burden that ultimately feels light. Um, and I think this is important to understand um, because healthy theology, gospel-saturated theology should never produce misery, loneliness, isolation, depression, anxiety in a Christian. Mm -hmm. That is not the product of a gospel-saturated theology. It just isn't. Um, and this is why the Bible says that the fruit of the Spirit is not loneliness, is not mental anguish, is not suicidal ideation. No, the Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience like these are the things that the bible says that following jesus living in the spirit living in the truth of the gospel produces in our life 
And so when people look at a queer person who is suffering in the church, who is feeling lonely and isolated um, and feeling like they don't have family, um, feeling depressed, hating themselves, and they say to that person, that's just the cross that you must bear in order to follow Jesus, that is a, a twisting of the gospel. Um, and it, it's, a, it's a lie, and it turns following Jesus into um, this, this awful and misery-inducing thing that following Jesus is not. Um, and so it, it just really twists the gospel. And so um, when I think of, of heavy burdens, heavy burdens, they twist the gospel. And when we think about how uh, most people live their lives, um, the burdens that are placed on LGBTQ people, um, nobody else would ever take up in a million years. Um, like telling a, a gay person that in order to be a Christian, in order to go to heaven, you have to be celibate. Otherwise you're going to hell. Like no straight person would ever agree to that kind of thing ever. Like they just wouldn't, um, you know, if you, uh, if I told a, a straight person that you have to be celibate in order to go to heaven. They'd look at me like I have two heads, <laughs> but nobody bats an eye to say that to a gay person. Um, and so there is this double standard here. Um, there are burdens that are placed on queer people in the church that no one would ever be willing to bear because they're not given to us by the cross of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um, and so um, that is kind of, I guess, the central kind of theme in my book that I kind of parse out as the book yeah. unfolds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. And I think that's such a, that, I mean, that scripture alone, I think does hold together so much of what you're trying to do and what you're trying to show. <clears throat> I just think, Again, like without growing up in the church, I didn't internalize as much as other people. But the crosses to bear thing, oftentimes the way people use that is one, very strange to me and two, extremely like damaging. And I think actually becomes a barrier towards the life in Christ. It's like, well, it's your cross to bear. Like that's the part of this that sucks. Mm -hmm. This is willpower Christianity. So you grit your teeth <laughs> and you do the hard thing and you obey God and what the Bible says, even though it sucks and hurts. I'm like, that's can't be what that means yeah you know and, and also so often for people who you know as a pastor you 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 definitely know it but for anybody who's choosing to create and choosing to love and choosing to actually live their life out loud and who's not on the sidelines of life and who's opening their hearts and taking risks the crosses we end up bearing are just the natural places that an open heart towards love takes us because if mm -hmm. you love people you will be hurt if you mm -hmm. create publicly, you will get hurt. If yeah. you love people, you'll get betrayed. So it's like that cross to bear is the natural place that a life of love is going to take us. And I think that paradox of, but when those crosses come, if we learn how to embrace, trust, accept, and go through the death, 
then there's resurrection and it gets lighter. So I'm like, you don't grit your teeth because this part of life sucks as a Christian. Yeah. No, when you yeah. love, it will take you to those places. And that mm -hmm. weird paradox is, but if you learn how to embrace it, face your own wounds, let go of your own illusions in the process, whatever is yours to relinquish, then there's all, it's always lighter on the other side. Mm -hmm. You know, the weird gritting your teeth willpower, this is the part of this that just sucks. I'm like, that's that sucks that yeah. that thing sucks that's not that that whole thing makes no sense to me yeah. at all but the placing on of burdens like matthew 23 talks about by the religious leaders that are just impossible they're impossible yeah. they're psychologically crushing they're just impossible and yeah. that can't be um, it's a good way to just almost like satirically expose the ridiculous nature of what so many people can easily take for granted as a legitimate mm -hmm. viable form of Christian spirituality. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you, um, we did some stuff in the intro, which I think is so good. I asked this question to different folks who come on, um, when queer people come on, maybe some people who are doing intentional work with the LGBTQ community, who are straight, cisgender, because I'm interested to hear their perspective on it too. But what I've seen over the years for a lot of Christians is an ongoing tension they feel between the head and the heart. Mm -hmm. like even like what we were talking about before, it kind of speaks to that. And what I've seen is like in people's heart, like in the concreteness of life, they want to embrace and welcome and be in relationship with their gay and lesbian and bi and trans friends but when they talk about their beliefs, they still hold on to a traditional view on same-sex attraction or whatever it is. And they end up with this conflict, right, between the head and the heart. There's a lack of an alignment there. Mm -hmm. Where I think some people just don't really think about it. They just sort of uncritically accept. Sometimes it feels like as if their minds have a hard time catching up with or aligning with their hearts, Mm -hmm. One, do you see that with people? Because I know you do, like you'll do consulting and you're working with Christian mm -hmm. communities or organizations mm -hmm. and obviously in your own experience. Do you, is that a common thing? And what do you say to people who feel that sort of tension? Yeah, yeah, it's an incredibly common thing. Um, becoming, and it's becoming more and more common mm -hmm. by the day. Um, and one of the reasons why I hope my book is able to actually reach people that find themselves in that place, because those are kind of the people that I'm wanting to talk to the, you know, the people that like have a heart for these issues, but don't really know how to, you know, resolve the tension that they're feeling. Um, and so uh, what I say to that kind of tension that exists is that, you don't need to change your theological beliefs in order to respect and honor LGBTQ people, um, their faith, how they choose to live their life, how Jesus is leading them, how the spirit is leading them. Um, you don't have to change your, no one is asking people to necessarily, you know, get, you know, uh, same sex married tomorrow. If you don't like, if you, if you're straight and it doesn't impact your life, you know, you don't actually need to necessarily change your theological beliefs, um, in order to respect the beliefs of others. Um, and so one way that I like to kind of talk about this is that, um, like for me, I still, as someone who is queer, um, is in the church and is a Christian, 
Um, I still hold to traditional beliefs and traditional approaches to theology, but at the same time, I 100% support and affirm and, uh, and admire the faith of LGBTQ people who believe differently than me. And that sounds like wild to people and they don't understand how that's possible. But we do this every day with other theological issues, like literally every single day. Um, like, for example, a, a major example that I use um, in my book is the issue of baptism. And baptism is like a huge issue in the Christian faith. It's a sacrament. Um, marriage isn't even a sacrament. Baptism is. Um, and, you know, I am a believer's Baptist. I believe in believer's baptism. Um, but I honestly, I'm not thinking every day about how, oh my gosh, I believe in believer's baptism. And like this really good friend of mine believes in infant baptism. And oh my gosh, she's thinking of baptizing her baby. And I, just, I can't go to the baptism because to oh, go to the baptism would be to condone and support. Yeah. There's like, no way I can't. Yeah. Like that doesn't make sense to me. And I meet few people that have those problems. Um, uh, you know, I do have friends that, you know, are Presbyterian or, um, you know, in different denominations that baptize infants. And honestly, like, I don't even like ever think, you know, even once about how, oh my gosh, she's, she's an infant baptizer. And like, if I'm invited to the baptism of a baby, well, sure. I'll go. I mean, like, it's not my theology, but like, I'll go to support them. Um, and so it's like, we, we do this already with other major theological issues. The, the reason why we have such a hard time with things like gender and sexuality and marriage is because like it's 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 the cultural issue mm. right now it's like so huge in our minds that we can't get past it and we think that it's like something that can't be overcome and it's like no let's like step back there are actually issues in christianity that are just as major as this and we all get along and we are able to affirm each other as faithful Christians and still respect each other. Um, and, you know, just because I believe in believer's baptism doesn't mean that, like, I think the faith of my friend who baptizes their infant is any less. Mm -hmm. um, it's just the spirit is leading us in different ways. We have slightly different understandings of scripture. And that's just how it's going to be in a fallen world where our own understanding of scripture is going to be limited. And like, we're going to get to heaven and find out that we were all wrong on like probably everything. And that's like, just that's part of just giving each other grace and just growing in the process of sanctification. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's even for us with imagine when I would think about or talk to people in our church or talk to whoever, I'm like, if you look at another church, I'm like, let's say they have traditional views on same-sex attraction. Okay. I'm like, you know, and again, like, I don't know all the politics of like churches and how everything's gone. Cause I was never even on staff at a church <laughs> before mm -hmm. my wife and I started to imagine, yeah. but I, I still get it. You know, I mean, obviously I know how things work and I know how different cultures are, but I'm like, Oh, this person does this, but if they find out that person's gay, they're going to be asked to like, they step down from quote unquote platform ministry. It basically means you can't lead worship or do something in the front. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I'd be like, 
Well, that's interesting. Do they do people ever get asked to not lead worship because they they haven't forgiven their mother? Mm-hmm. Do people ever get asked to step down because they aren't praying for their enemies, whoever they are? Do they ever get asked to step down because they're not spending time with the poor because mm-hmm. they're not forgiving? These are because these are some of the things Jesus explicitly talked mm-hmm. about. I'm like, no. Then why would you do that if like if you think that's a sin? But all like mm-hmm. to me and and you know like the elevation of marriage and the nuclear family in, you know, sort of our, the experience of American evangelicalism is to a point that it was never elevated in the text itself. So that, and right now it's just a a weird symbol for me of like holding on Mm -hmm. to a world that no longer exists. You know, it's more than that for people. You know, it's like, if you take that done, it's like almost everything starts to fall apart and people are holding on to what can feel like a house of cards, you know, at times. So there's a lot more of people's personal identity wrapped up in these conversations than they're, than they realize. Yeah. I I wanted to, yeah, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to briefly say like what you touched on about the elevation of marriage, um, 100% factors into this. We've turned marriage into a way bigger thing than it actually is Mm -hmm. in the Bible um and like we really just need to take a step back and kind of chill out um and like let people kind of follow the spirit's leading um and um you know figure figure out the theology for themselves and you know to respect that process and other people instead of like making it this huge thing yeah yeah Yeah, even for my wife and i'm like a marriage a relationship is at its healthiest when when I never ask you to be more for me than what you have been designed to do. Mm-hmm. The degree to which I'm not asking you to save complete or do everything for me is the degree to which we now have the freedom to love each other as we are and to allow something bigger, which is God, which is the spirit to actually hold together the whole. Yeah. But when everything's put on it, it's just so it's just, you know, it's, it's becomes, pressure to be something that it, 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 it isn't and it can't yeah. ever be for a person in terms of exactly. fulfilling their every need or whatever exactly. exactly before we move towards wrapping up i did want to ask you this about the church too you know i wanted to talk about the danger of a form of bait and switch that i see in so yeah. many churches you know while churches say and i believe in their hearts they mean it i give people the benefit of the doubt too i don't think churches are malicious in terms of wanting to do a bait and switch but when a church is saying or their messaging is everyone is welcome as they are what i've seen happen for so many lgbtq people in the church is once they get a little closer once they start to connect and contribute to the community more they discover there are all kinds of barriers that exist for their participation in the community they can't serve in this capacity they can't preach they can't leave this thing Mm -hmm. um which when you think about why an lgbtq person in general but specifically one who's grown up in a church has countless legitimate reasons to not trust to not open themselves up to not feel safe and then it's like you come in because the messaging or the it's usually in churches that are like the branding is really good mm-hmm. and it, but as they get closer and as they start to finally open their heart up then they're hit with those things what if you think it is what is damaging or even like irresponsible about this kind of 
approach. Like, do you see that? And what is, what is, why is that so damaging for people? Yeah. Well, I think the biggest reason is that it's, it's genuinely traumatizing to think that you are accepted and loved. Um, and then to discover that there are conditions upon your belonging um, that is just genuinely traumatizing, no matter how you slice it. Nobody wants to be in a situation where their belonging is conditional. Like that's the type of stuff like belonging is conditional in your job. <laughs> um, it's, you know, conditional in, you know, different venues where you have to perform well enough in order to like, you know, make money and things like that. Um, why would belonging be conditional in a church setting? Um, it makes no sense uh, because God's love is unconditional love. Um, that is the love that, you know, Jesus brought um, to us in the gospel. Um, and so if the church is supposed to be a place that is bringing the gospel to the communities that surround it and is um, introducing Jesus into people's lives, why would they reflect a love that is not the love of Jesus? Um, and it, it's really, um, it's really damaging to people's faith when the um, place that is supposed to reflect the love of Jesus Christ reflects a love that is not actually the love of Jesus. Um, but in saying that this is representative of the gospel, it misrepresents who Jesus is and gives people a wrong picture. And ultimately, for many, turns people off to the Christian faith and causes them to just give up on the church altogether because they think if this this is what Christianity is, this is what it this is what Jesus is, um, and if if my belonging is conditional here and they don't want me unless I am X, Y, Z way, then Jesus doesn't want me either. Um, and I've spoken to a number of gay people who have had that experience where they concluded after experience, after experience in the church of learning time and time again, that they did not belong unless they were celibate unless they did this, unless they did that, identified in this way. Um, if they didn't do all these things, then they could not belong in the church. And they concluded after all of that, that if the church didn't want them, then Jesus didn't want them either. Um, and that is inexcusable. Um, and it, it absolutely destroys faith and it destroys people's lives. Um, and, and encourages, um, suicidal thoughts in many. Um, and so it's, it's important for churches to accept LGBTQ people unconditionally to not place requirements and expectations of like, you need to think this way. You need to do this with your gender and sexuality. Otherwise you're not fully one of us. Mm -hmm. That is not the gospel that Jesus brings. Um, to anyone. And so it's not the gospel that the church should be giving to LGBTQ people. Yeah, I literally just, that's so good. I just thought this when you were saying that, I'm like, if a person cannot be embraced by the body of Christ, how can they ever trust that they're welcome in the heart of Christ? Mm -hmm. Yes. 
You know, and that, that's something we said at Imagine, like too many people don't know they're loved by God because they're not being loved by us. Yes. Yeah. And I, I asked that because, you know, I have my own thoughts on that. And I've seen the experiences of other people as just another, like, oh, this is another church that's cool. Everyone looks great on the Instagram. But when I go, I discover in the end, it's just Southern fundamentalism wrapped up in like whatever the newest trends are, you know, in terms yeah. of fashion, you know, that's a, yeah. this, this is totally off topic, but I've always found that fascinating, like going to seminary and, you know, being around other pastors is I feel like you would think that people being sort of on the cutting edge of fashion, you know, church where everyone you know has all the right hats and all the right clothes and everyone's like right on the edge of it all. You would think it correlates with like, being theologically progressive, just like, Oh, like they, it's, they're there, but it's not. I'm like, usually it's their reverse. Like those actually is just a classic, really kind of conventional conservative faith. It just looks cool. You know, they have a great sound system or whatever. And I think people get drawn into that and then experience these kinds of things that we're talking about. Yeah. Um, 100%. All right. We're going to conclude with this, some hopes, some possibilities, because, you know, we write, you do the work you do, you know, because it would, it would seem there's still something in you that believes in new possibilities, that has hope for the future, that sees the possibility of change, more inclusive, wider, more expansive expressions of the faith, which I love because there's a lot of reasons for anybody in the United States of America to have a hard time believing in that at times with the church yeah. Yeah. especially for lgbtq folks i think the courage to it takes it takes courage and energy to hope mm-hmm. you know, and the older you get the more you realize that you know yeah. like it takes to keep your heart open to keep seeing resurrection to keep allowing to not shut down the parts of you along the way to allow yourself to be open to see all that like that's the real journey as we keep going on from my perspective you know to keep believing yeah um i'm gonna ask you about some specific stories things you've seen where you're like man those are the moments where you're like this is like this is the moment when i describe that kid who comes in for the first time and hears that sermon or a young woman from from our church who comes out publicly for the first time as she's getting baptized, you know, I I mean, there's so many stories like that. I have that. I'm like, how could I not believe in the resurrection when I keep seeing it happen in the lives of these people around me and through the community and where we live. And, you know, to see a couple from our church who, when they first came, I would assume, you know, have traditional views on sexuality and I haven't followed up with them, you know, in years. It's like, hey, so where are you at with that now? You know, it's not really <laughs> what I've done. But when I see a gay man in the back of our church holding their baby, a man who also like, you know, does drag too. And I'm like, he's holding their baby. They're in church together. They embrace him into their heart. He embraces them. He's like, to me, I'm like, that is a sign of, I don't know exactly where they're at now, but what I see is a community that in the midst of people having different views on things, I see that while I'm preaching. I just see to the back of the bar that happening. I'm just like, for me, I'm like, this is it. Like those are the moments like that for me. So what are, an individual story, things you've seen, conversations where you're like, man, these are the moments that have given me glimpses of the hope of like where you keep going with your work. 
Yeah, so two stories come to mind. Um, the first is um, one that I share briefly in my book, actually. Um, a, a few years ago, for a period of time, I started attending a predominantly lesbian church. And I was mo I mostly was just attending out of curiosity. Um, and... Uh, can't necessarily say that I was like genuinely seeking, um, you know, a spiritual community or anything like that. Um, I was kind of going with a little bit of a skeptic's hat, kind of like, oh, it's, what is this like? What is this lesbian church? And like, what's oh, these liberals, uh... yeah, like, <laughs> they probably have you know weak theology and you know <laughs> probably just like wishy washy. And yeah, it was very like just like yeah. You know, uh, let's go and see what, what's going on there. Um, and so, you know, I started attending and it was absolutely 100% a life-changing experience for me um, because, uh, and I only went a few times because I was in a transition phase um, and I was moving away from the city that I was living in and stuff like that. Um, but the few times that I went, I was just absolutely shocked and overcome by how much of Jesus was there in the room, how much of the gospel was present in the preaching, in the worship, um, in the, you know, atmosphere of the place and the people that were there, just so much of the love of Jesus just filled in this place. Um, and it really made me realize um, just how the spirit is at work in the lives of LGBTQ people in mm. powerful ways yeah. um, and in ways that are not necessarily always present in churches that think that they have their theology, you know, all lined up, all their ducks in a row. Um, you know, the, the amount of just like gospel saturated, just, Jesus filled kind of atmosphere that was at that church. I had not experienced in a very, very long time. Um, and so it really just kind of made me realize um, how Jesus is at work in places where so many people kind of like raise an eyebrow and just assume that they're just kind of write them off as you know, liberal, progressive, wishy-washy, not real Christians. Um, but many times the, the, the places that are written off are the places where Jesus is at work the most. Um, and that Which sounds a lot like every story we see in the gospels. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Shocker, right? <laughs> that the, the, the stories that we see in the gospels are the same stories that are ongoing now today. Mm. Um, you know, God is the same God today as he was yesterday, um, as help you tomorrow. Um, and so that leads me to my last um, and final story. Um, just that God is still at work um, and is doing amazing things in the lives of LGBTQ people, um, irrespective of the toxic messaging that they may be hearing from other Christians and the condemnations that they're getting. Like God is finding ways to speak his truth and his love to LGBTQ people. And so um, I am reminded of one friend in particular that I had who was queer and um, they 
were not the type of person that I would have ever necessarily thought was like on the verge of becoming a Christian. They were actually kind of like not really interested. Um, and on a whim, they decided to start reading the Bible, not because they were interested in becoming a Christian, but as an intellectual exercise so that they could be aware of it, you know, kind of like how, you know, people will read the Quran or other different texts just so that they're educated. Um, and, uh, this friend of mine literally made it through chapter two of Genesis, like chapter two of Genesis. And, uh, by the end of chapter two, she was bawling and crying and committed her life to Jesus Christ. Wow, and like, from the, the, from the Genesis story. Yeah. For, like <laughs> Genesis one, Genesis two saved by Jesus. <laughs> and that to me is just an example. Like she came to my house, like the next day, it was like crying. It was like, Oh my gosh, like I'm a Christian. What on earth is happening? And I was like, I don't know what is happening. <laughs> um, but it was like, that to me was a moment of like, God was at work. Like who, seriously, who reads the first two chapters of Genesis and gets saved? Like, like this was the Holy Spirit at work. And so like God is at work in the lives of queer people. He is speaking his love into the lives of queer people. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of harm that has been done. There's a lot of negative messaging, but God is still at work. He is still speaking in the midst of that and getting through to people and people's lives are still being changed by the gospel. Um, and honestly, I think that the more the church listens, um, to the experiences of LGBTQ people, the more Christians will see, um, that the love of Jesus is really present in the lives of so many queer Christians. Um, and the church really has a lot to learn about faith from queer believers um, and what it means to follow Jesus. And so um, I'm excited to see that happen more in the future. Well, I mean, there's only one place we can go from there with every head bow, with every eye closed. <laughs> I see a hand in the back. Oh, wait, that wasn't it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Bridget, that man, thank you so much for for coming on. This was so good, and I think this will be an episode that just the listeners love so much. Um, if you want to follow up with Bridget's work as quickly as possible, and you know, see some of the writing, and if you you can actually uh, sign up on her website to be able to get an advanced copy of the intro before the book comes out, you can do that at Meditations of a Traveling Nun dot com when we post this episode we'll have links to her instagram so you can follow along once again thank you so much and yeah i really october 26 heavy burdens i look forward to this book coming out and how it keeps advancing how it, it how it will be a great part of advancing where our church goes as a whole so yeah thank you so much thank you i'm, I'm excited really appreciate it